Good morning, Valley Bible Church. Good to see you. Beautiful day. It's been a beautiful week. It's uh, a little bit after 11. Anybody ready for a nap already? Man, I always dread this Sunday. Uh, I get up early on, on Sunday mornings, and so 3.30 a.m. body clock time. Something's wrong. with you, don't, you just don't do that. It's like the middle of the night. But anyway, God is great. God is good. So good to see you all this morning. We are continuing in the book of John, in John chapter 13, as we work through chapters 13 through 17, this uh, major section of the uh, upper room discourse or farewell discourse. And so this morning, we are looking at uh, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, either a Bible, a codex, maybe you have a scroll, maybe you have a digital uh, a version would you please open there with me to John chapter 13, and would you stand? We know that this is the moment we believe truly God is speaking to us, and so would you give attention to the reading of God's Word, John chapter 13, beginning in verse 31, the Word of God. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him... God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. God's people said, Amen. Please, would you be seated? God in heaven, we are grateful for the words of Christ Jesus that come to us with such gravity from so many ages ago. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who inscripturated them for us and who enlightens us to understand but also to obey this morning. Pray that that would be the ministry today of you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you would take your word and that you would make it alive in our hearts and minds, that you would allow us to live these, these truths in our lives. So we thank you for the example of Christ that is the whole reason that we're here, the one who died in our place, in whom we believe, on whom we trust, and we put our everlasting hope in him and nothing else and no one else. And so we're grateful, Lord God, for that truth that we are your brothers and sisters, your children, your disciples. Teach us as we ought to be taught this morning. For all this we pray in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. What is a disciple? <clears throat> That's something that should be easily answered by all of us. We've been, most of you have been around the church a long time, and you've been in sermons and Sunday school classes, and you've heard us say before that a disciple is a, is a follower, a learner. The word mathetes means one who follows. So as a student of a rabbi who listens to the teachings of that rabbi and follows those teachings, um, one of the things that Dr. Evan Burns said this weekend, if you were there talking about the Great Commission, 
uh, go and make disciples of all nations, uh, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That word observe is a word that means to, to be sentinels, to be guardians of the truth that has been given to us. But there are also commands. And we are to be obedient to all the teachings of Christ, and we'll see that this morning, because um, the purpose of a disciple, ultimately, of our discipleship, is, is the glory of God, is his glory. And how do, how do we bring glory to God as disciples of Jesus Christ? By following him, by doing what he's called us to do. And what that results in is that we become like the teacher. We become like the master, as Jesus said elsewhere. The pupil becomes like the teacher. The goal of discipleship is Christ-likeness, is sanctification, that more and more and more in our lives we become like Jesus Christ in our thinking, in our words, in our mannerisms, in our lives, in our obedience to the Father as he obeyed the Father. Last week we closed the sermon, we closed the service with... I have decided to follow Jesus, to be a disciple. Though none go with me, still I will follow. The world behind me, the cross before me, still I will follow. I've decided, I've made that decision. We've placed our hope in him, and we are to be followers. Luke 16, Jesus said, If if anyone wants to come after me to be a disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross, Follow, follow me. First Peter 2, For you have been called for this purpose, ladies and gentlemen, since Christ also suffered for you to follow, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. He gave us an example to follow in his steps. The example that he gave us that we've seen already in this chapter he, he, he washed the disciples' feet and he said, I have given you an example, that in First Peter, a pattern, an example, a go-by. This is what we look to is Jesus Christ to become like him. We follow him. And Jesus continues to teach this. Uh, he's established this fact that we're to follow him. But remember how he began this chapter before the feast of Passover, before the, the dinner, the, the Passover meal. He knew that his hour had come that he would depart from this world and he would go back to the Father having loved his own, those who belonged to him, and he loved them to the end. And then he was betrayed. And then he washed their feet, saying, follow this example. And so we are to follow Christ's example in all things. First and foremost, I want us to see in verses 31 and 32, Follow Christ's example by living for the glory of God. That is why Jesus lived, the glory of God. That is why he came, for the glory of God. The hour of his glorification had come. His glorification, the glory of the Father, and we are to follow his example. Verses 31 and 32 say this, Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Do you get the point? You see the repetition, not only the pronouns of him, 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 himself, but glory. Glorify. He's talking about his own glorification. But, But notice, first of all, he says, 
Therefore, when he had gone out, when who had gone out? Judas. When Judas had gone out, evil departs. When evil departs, I'm certain that the atmosphere changed. Think about it. The devil had put into the heart of Judas to betray his master. And then what we saw last week, the devil, Satan, came into Judas. Think about that. Satan, the devil himself, was in the midst of Jesus and his disciples in that room. Evil was present. You wonder if it was palpable. You wonder if it was noticeable. You've been in many cases, I'm sure, where it's, it's odd. I don't know how it works, but there's a, there is a certain atmosphere in a room. There is a certain way in which things feel to you. You sense them. How could there not be some understanding of the presence of evil at this moment? And Jesus is even talking about it. One of you is going to betray me. But evil departs, and we see... A fundamental truth, therefore, that spiritual truths are meant for spiritual people. Judas could not have understood the words that Jesus was going to speak. And the words that Jesus has now are words that are meant only for his disciple, not those who are betrayers, not those who are false disciples. The words that he is going to speak are only for those who truly are his own and belong to him. And that departure of Judas was the final launch sequence for the hour of glorification. Remember back in chapter 12, uh, some, some Greeks, some Gentiles were coming and they wanted to talk to Jesus and, they, and they, they came to Andrew. We want to see him. And Andrew came to Philip and Philip came to, to Jesus and said, there are some, some Greek Gentiles who want to talk to you. And he said, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The seeking of the the Gentiles for the Jewish Messiah and the betrayal of one of his own followers, both of these set into motion and initiate the plan of God. It is beginning, it is happening. So he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. What is he talking about? He's talking about going to the cross. He's talking about the event of redemption and all that it entails. He's going to the cross. Notice the, the five-fold repetition of the word glorify, 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 glorify. You think he's making a point there? Look how it begins. Now the Son of Man is glorified and ends with, and he will glorify him immediately. It's upon us. It's happening now. The, the Greek grammar describes an event of the past as though it had already happened. To stress the certainty of this, it portrays a future event as if it were already past. It's as good as done, we would say in English. Even though he has not actually been arrested, he's not been tried He's not been beaten. He's not been crucified. He's not died yet. But it's as good as done. Verse 32 speaks of his suffering and death. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. 
if God is glorified in him, verse 32 then speaks of his resurrection and ascension. God will also glorify him in himself, and he will glorify him immediately. He's going to die, and he's going to be raised up to the Father's right hand. John 17, first few verses explain it perfectly. It says, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may be glorified in you. And then he said in verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Everything that he gave to him, his, his mission, he speaks of it as accomplished, even though he hasn't totally finished it. In the mind and the plan of God, it's as good as done. Now, Father, he said, glorify me together with you, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. There's the glorification of the cross and the glorification of the resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God where he goes back to the glory that he had with the Father before anything ever was and before he ever became a man. But how is Jesus glorified in the cross? Isn't that a symbol of shame? Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. How is that glory? We think of glory as usually this you know, bright, shining light, and there are places in the Bible that talk about the glory manifest like that. But, but even that bright, shining light is, is, a, is, is something else. It, it demonstrates something about God. You see, the glory of God is a declaration. It is an unveiling, a display of the perfections of God. It is showing a light upon what He's like. Sometimes that light that we see of the glory of God is blinding. You can't even look at it. It is actually saying something about his perfections that he is unapproachable. You cannot come to him. So the glory of God is this unveiling of all the, and the, the perfections of God and his attributes. The cross. What attributes do we, of God do we see displayed in the cross? Righteousness. In holiness, he is a righteous and holy God, and he will by no means clear the guilty. He doesn't shrug off sin. He doesn't shrug off the evil in the world and say, "Eh, whatever, we'll just let it pass. That evil has to be nailed. It has to be put to death. It has to be judged. Therefore, we see his justice. Only God is just. Today we hear all about you know, social justice, which changes from day to day and week to week. There is only one who is just. There is only one who is righteous. There is only one standard of what is good and righteous and just, and it is the Lord God. And it is demonstrated at the cross of Christ that he is just in pouring out his wrath on his Son for us. So in that, we see the mercy of God. Because the Son of God takes what is rightly ours. He is the innocent one. We are the guilty ones. We see an act of mercy on the part of God, a gracious God. We see the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son to die on a cross so that we who believe might not perish but have everlasting life. 
And we see his forgiveness at the cross. It's not some symbol of horrible execution. Yes, it was horrible, but we see the glory of God in it. And when Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified, he's talking about his suffering, his crucifixion, his death. And God will glorify him, is speaking of his resurrection and his ascension. And that is also the perfections of God on display. His power, his authority over sin and death and Satan once for all, done away with, and he rules and he reigns in heaven. The glory of God. And, O oh, Christian, that is where you are seated now, if you believe in him. You too have died with him. You too have been raised with him. You too have been seated with him in the heavenly places. So all to say, the glory of God is the ultimate. It involves the glory of the Son. It involves the glory of the Father. You cannot separate the two. The glory of the Son is the glory of the Father. The glory of the Father is the glory of the Son. And it all works together. And the glory of, the, of God was the very purpose of the life of Jesus Christ. It was his purpose. It was always his priority. And it was always his practice to bring glory to his Father so should we. It should be our purpose. It should be our priority. It should be our practice to bring glory to God. Now, there's no exhortation here. Old Christian, bring glory to God here. But he's already told us to follow his example, washing one another's feet. His entire time on this earth was given specifically to this task to bring glory to the Father. That's his life. That is our life. It is the same. We are told, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we have that elsewhere in the scriptures. We are to do all things in his name. We are to all do all to the glory of God. And since the very purpose of his life was the glory of God. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, the very purpose of our life is the same, right? To bring glory to God. So a couple of things that we learn here. First, the glory of God is the issue. The church I came from, we used, that was a saying that we used all the time. The glory of God is the issue. So for us, it's the same. I'm praying about a new job. The glory of God is the issue. I'm having trouble with my marriage. The glory of God is the issue. I'm not sure what to do with my children right now. The glory of God is the issue. We want to start a new ministry of Valley Bible Church. The glory of God is the issue. No matter what it is we face no matter what it is, whether it's a problem, whether it's a joy, I'm getting a new job as a teacher, I'm getting a new job at a bank, the glory of God is the issue in all things. As it was in Christ's life, not just what we do in this building, but what we do in our vocation, with our, in our neighborhood, whatever we do is to be to the glory of God. It is the issue. But secondly... It will be costly. The glory of the cross, oh, 
all glorious, but what did it cost? If we are to bring glory to God, it will be costly to us because it will involve the pattern of Christ's life. We live out the gospel day by day by day. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We die to ourselves. Sometimes we we die to things very hard, very difficult things, but God always leads us in the victory. We always have the, the resurrection power within us to live a victorious Christian life And so we live out suffering and death, resurrection and exaltation, the gospel, day by day by day, but it is costly. No, there's not an exhortation for us to do it, but our lives are to follow the example of Jesus' life, take up your cross and deny him. You've been called for this purpose. Even as he suffered, you've been called to follow in his steps. It might be costly. There is coming a day, I didn't say this in the first service, but there's coming a day in our culture, we talk about God's justice, where you might get a job at a, for the government, at a hospital, for an institution, a bank, and you will have to sign a doctrinal statement affirming all things ungodly and denying things all holy and true. And you will not be able to work there unless you affirm things about marriage and gender and your race and all sorts of things. You are going to suffer one day for that monetarily. It's, it's happening now. It's not just something that we're forecasting down the, down the road. It's happening now. It will be costly and you may have to die to that. For what? The glory of God is the issue. We are to live by the example of Christ. So we follow his example by living for the glory of God. And secondly, in verse 33, we follow Christ's example, his example of affectionate devotion to God's family. Affectionate devotion to God's family. He gave us an example. We see that he was affectionate. He had this fond affection. And this was his family, the disciples. This was his family on earth at that time. Yes, he had a mom and a dad and brothers, but this was the family, and we are the family, God's family. We're to follow that example. Verse 33, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You'll seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you where I am going, you can't come there. Little children. Jesus has this fond affection for his disciples, and he is also devoted to them. He's devoted to their well-being. He's devoted to their future. He's devoted to the outcome of their faith, their redemption, their promised home in heaven. He is affectionate toward them and devoted to their well-being. His affection is found in this endearing term, little children term of intimacy, emphasizing closeness, his tender care for them. This is the only time anywhere that Jesus calls his disciples little children. The only place. Whenever you see something in the Bible that it only appears once, or a word that only appears once, you've got to take note of it and you, go, you have to ask yourself, why does this appear here? And is it significant? And indeed it is. 
later on in this book, in chapter 21, he will call his disciples children. But there it's a little more cryptic because it's after his resurrection. Peter and the guys have gone fishing. And um, he comes out there and, um, and it's kind of a stick in the mud. And he says, children, you haven't caught any fish, have you? you ever, anybody ever say that to you? You got skunked, huh? But he calls them children. That's, who is this guy criticizing our fishing skills? But here, he calls them little children. This is family language, isn't it? John, who wrote this gospel, also writes the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, also writes the book of Revelation. And in his first epistle, John uses this term. He's the only other person who uses it. Little children, seven times in that book, little children, little children, little children, little children, little children, little children, little children. Where did he get that language? The pupil has become like the teacher. He's become like the master. We do that sometimes. If you've been, if you've been discipled by someone or mentored by someone, maybe you have a favorite author, you adopt their language, their phraseology, the, that's, that's okay, it's the... You know, um, uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, and we are to imitate Christ in the right way. And remember, as Chris explained last week, John was leaning against the chest of Jesus. You have to wonder, could he hear his heartbeat? Was his head there? Could he feel his breath on the back of his neck? And Jesus says, little children, he breathes these words, and he never forgets it. It becomes part of his verbiage, his vocabulary, the way he views other disciples. He views them that way. He's an older man at this point. He views his disciples as his little children. So we see this affection, but we also see his devotion. He goes on to say, I'm with you a little while longer. The reason he uses this language that is so endearing and so tender is because he has some difficult news. Little children, I'm going away. You can't come. He's breaking it to them very gently because he cares for them. And... The departure of Jesus from this world is one of the key themes of chapters 13 through 17. And he lets them down easy because he's full of love and compassion for them. And uh, remember how the, the chapter started again. He loved his own and he loved them to the end. This is another example of that love being demonstrated to them. And he says, a little while longer, I'm only with you a little bit. And you're going to look for me. But like I told the Jews, you can't go there. You'll be looking for me. You're not going to find me. They, they don't really understand. Where is he going? He's going to the cross. He's going to the grave. He's going back to heaven. They can't follow him right now. We know what he said to the, to the Jews, what he's referring to back in chapter 7 and chapter 8. He said this very thing. He said, I'm departing, I'm going away, and you will look for me and you can't find me. But he said to the Jews, the, the Pharisees and the chief priests, and you will die in your sins. I'm going away, 
and you'll die in your sins because you do not believe in me. He doesn't say that to his disciples here. And this verse does not stand alone. We'll get to, uh, to the, 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 backs, the other end of this in, in a few weeks because just a few sentences later, Jesus is going to declare his undying devotion to them. I'm going away, but while I'm gone, I'm going to prepare for you. And I'm going to come back. And I'm going to take you there. And we'll get to that in due time. So we can, we can call attention to that. He is devoted to their well-being, their future, and their redemption. And their future. But you see, the same event of the cross cuts both ways. Those who believe, it's judgment. Because the words he spoke to the, the, the Pharisees and the, and the scribes, that was judgment. I'm going away, you can't find me, and you'll die in your sins. But what he speaks to his disciples... It's life. The cross means life to them. He addresses them as children. He does not say they will die in their sins. Instead, he's going to prepare a place for them. And as he will say in chapter 14, verse 19, because I live, you will live also because of their faith. So what do we learn? His affection is to be our affection. If we're following the example of Christ, we notice every detail about him, every word, every voice inflection, even though we can't hear it, we can discern it somehow. And his affection is to be our affection. Our affection. We are to have a fond affection for one another. I know we can't manufacture that. We have it here, and I praise God that it exists here. Unfortunately, there are some churches that are cold and uncaring, and there's no fond affection, but we do have it. But if we don't have it in, in, in our individual hearts, we must ask ourselves, why is my heart cold toward other believers? What is wrong with me? Is there something for which I need to repent, that I'm not like Jesus in this area? Our affection for one another is not to be devoid or empty of emotion. We, we go to extremes with the whole affection thing. On, on one hand, it's either all heart and no head. On the other hand, it's all head and no heart. It's both. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your strength. Every bit of you. It includes emotion. We are created in the image of God. And that means we are emotional beings. And part of... Being emotional beings is we share that love and fondness for one another. And there's this compassion, this closeness, this affection of Christ's love being demonstrated to his disciples. It is, it is familial. It's not institutional. It's not perfunctory. It's not wooden. It's genuine. It flows from a love for him. And we are to demonstrate that to one another. And second... God's people are family. God's people are family. We continue to see this evidence. We talk about it oftentimes. You've heard me over the years talk about the church as a family. And we continue to see that evidence that the church is family by familial names, brother and sister. He is our father. We are his children We are the little children. This is the language of family. Little children, you are brothers and sisters. We're family. 
we're family. We are to have a fond affection for one another as families are supposed to. I understand some families are dysfunctional and you don't have that experience, but this is the real, this is the real thing. All families, human families, are a reflection of this. It's not the other way around. This is the real, true, lasting family. This is where you find belonging and, and compassion and forgiveness. It's supposed to be that way. And families are to be devoted to one another by a bond that cannot be broken. The bond that we have cannot be broken. John 14, he's going to say, Oh, I will give you the Holy Spirit forever. That means when you get the Holy Spirit forever. You become part of the family of God forever. You know what? We're stuck with each other, right? Forever. So we're to live this out now because we will be with one another forever. It's a bond that cannot be broken. People say that, yeah, blood is thicker than water, but our bond is his blood. It's greater than familial bonds of this world. So follow Christ's example by living for the glory of God and follow Christ's example, the example of affectionate devotion to our family, God's family. And finally, follow Christ's example by living the command of love. In the scripture, there's a law of love. It may sound um, wrong to you, like it's, how can love be a law? But there is a law of love in the scriptures. But it's a command that needs to be lived I think we sing that it was one of the uh, as we live out the word of God, not just merely uh, dry duty, but it's a, it's a way of life that we live this way. We are people who love one another. So he says in verse thirty four and verse verse thirty five, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I love you, have loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is probably, this is, I mean, there's so many important verses of the Christian life. This is one, isn't it? I mean, truly, how many times have you heard this verse? These verses, how important they are to our existence as a church, not just Valley Bible Church, but the church throughout the world that we be known by our love. That's the kind of people that we are, love for one another. And uh, it's so important. In, 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 in chapter 13, it's almost like an introduction to this because he's going to have a lot more to say about this. So, you know, we're, we can't exhaust this this morning. In chapter 15, he's going to say much more about this. He will come back to it as a commandment. He will come, come, come back to it as a our love for him is measured by our obedience to those commandments and many other things. Remember that the subject here is, is the love that he showed. In chapter 13, verse 1, he loved them to the end. He washed their feet. He demonstrated love in the midst of betrayal, showing comp- compassion. And now he gives a commandment. Who is able to give commandments? Like this, God. 
Only one. You, th- you think about the, the history of God's people, the history of Israel, the Ten Commandments, the book of Leviticus and Numbers and all the, the, the commands that are there about the washings and the sacrifices and the, the holy days, all these things we have, to, we have to obey or they had to obey, the Jews had to obey. <clears throat> and here he's talking to his disciples, his Jewish disciples, who know all the commandments, and he says, I got a new one for you. What? A new one? How can there be a new commandment? There are way too many to begin with. But he's got a new commandment. And only God gives commands, and that means we are under his command, we are under his authority, we submit to the law of love by living it because he's given it to us. So what's a command? Second of all, why is it new? What is new about this? It's new because it has a a new object. Love one another. See, it narrows it from loving your neighbor to loving one another, the people in this room. This is about loving disciples. This is not about loving unbelievers into the kingdom of God. That's not what this is about, no. This is about loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. In Luke chapter 10, uh, a scene I think is repeated in both Matthew and Mark in different ways. A a lawyer comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Excuse me, and his answer is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. That is the, the, the Shema of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, the Lord is our God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. We are to love God with everything that we have, our entire being, our emotions, our bodies, our, our wills, our emotion, everything that we have, we are to love him with that. And then Jesus said to this man, and your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus 19.18. If you've been reading through the Bible recently, you've probably been slogging your way through Leviticus recently. And it's just a lot of, lot of boring stuff, but there's these high points. And one of them is Leviticus 19.18. The first time that this ever appears in the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am God. That's the first time it appears. Repeated often in the New Testament as the royal law. Paul. James, Jesus himself. The entire law is summed up in these two commandments. Love God completely and love others compassionately as yourself. In other words, what they were saying was, you don't really need the book, we need it, but if you just do this one thing, if you love God completely with your entire being in, in everyday life, Whatever you face, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you don't need to go, "Ah, what do I need to do in this situation? Um, It's easy. And the whole law is fulfilled. It is summed up in those things. But then in Luke, that lawyer said, well, and who's my neighbor? You know, trying to justify himself. And then comes the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the upshot is, your neighbor's anybody. Anybody you come in contact with, the guy that runs into you and you have to exchange uh, uh, insurance stuff with, 
uh, your neighbor next door, your literal neighbor, the people you work with in the office, in the factory, people you see at the grocery store, anybody we come in contact with, that is our neighbor. And Jesus is saying, you are to demonstrate love to people no matter what. But here, you see the change in focus is narrowed. It's new because the object is one another. Not your neighbors, that's important, yes. But he's saying we are to love one another. It, it also has not only a new object, but a new measure, a new standard, a new yardstick. As Christ has loved us. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the standard of that. Love one another as Christ loved you. You see the difference? We might get into a little trouble with love your neighbor as yourself sometimes. Um, because sometimes we are, some people are self, self-loathing and some people are self-centered, both of which are pride. But we might be hampered if we are not loving as Christ loved us. By the way, loving your neighbor as yourself is not advocating self-love. You oftentimes see that. Oh, before you can love others, you first need to learn how to love yourself. You need to, you need to forgive yourself first. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. What it means is it takes for granted that we love ourselves. Paul said it in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And then he goes on to say, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes us. We take care of ourselves. Anybody not look in the mirror this morning? Anybody not wash this morning? Don't, well, never mind, never mind. <laughs> Don't want to go there. We care about this. It's natural. But we're supposed to care about this more one another as he loved us so we have a new measure it's not as yourself it says as he has loved us and it's this and not that it's in here the commandment is parallel i think to um, verse 14 where he said if i then the lord and teacher washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet same thing if i have loved you in this way so are you to love one another So, he is going to demonstrate that love at this time. They don't understand it completely. Remembering these words later, they're going to say, oh, boy, how did he love us? Right now they're thinking, he says, you are to love one another as I have loved you. Yeah, we've, been, we've had some good times and some bad times. We've seen some wonderful things. And you've taught us a lot of stuff. But they're going to look back and they're going to say, oh, his heart stopped beating. He stopped breathing for us. He gave his life. It was love. That's the way that he loved us. So when we say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, that, that isn't just for husbands. It's for all of us in a sense, isn't it? Wives, love your husbands even as Christ has loved you. Parents, love your children even as Christ has loved you. Children, love your, your siblings and your parents even as Christ has loved you in the family of God. And he had this genuine affection for his disciples 
And so we are to have the same for one another. So what is to be the outcome of this type of love? We learn this. The sine qua non of discipleship is love for one another. You've heard that word, that phrase, sine qua non. It's a Latin phrase which means without which not. In other words, discipleship doesn't exist if there's no love. Without which not. So love one another without which love there is no discipleship. Without which love we are not disciples. It is the symbol. It is the badge. It is the the litmus test that we are true followers and believers in Jesus Christ, that we love one another in the same way that Christ has loved us. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In some senses, it is evangelistic. It's not evangelistic in the sense that you need to go love the world into the kingdom of God. No, you need to love one another, and somehow the world will notice. We don't know how. We talked about this at the, uh, our sermon prep time last Tuesday, asking the question, so what are we supposed to do? How is the world going to know that we love one another? Are we supposed to broadcast it? Do we advertise do we have a sign out there that says Valley Bible Church, the most loving church in town? Is that what we do? I think we just live it. And we leave the results to Him. Somehow the word gets out. You tell people about your church family, I hope. You invite them to church. I, when I'm out in town and doing different things, getting a haircut or meeting people, somehow you know, you've got to put down where you work, that kind of stuff. Oh, Valley Bible Church. So where's that at? And I, you know what? I always sing your praises. I mean that. I do. And I always say it's a very loving church. That is what I say. And I might tell a story. Yeah, we had a family that needed a car, and just out of the blue, people put, brought some money and bought a car. We had a a couple whose child was, in, uh, was, was ill in the hospital and, and the church rallied around them and babysat and brought meals. And you know what? You, you know we have story after story after story after story like that at Valley Bible Church. It happens every single week. Somehow the world sees that. And that is our calling card. That is the attraction. Yes, we're to love them, but this is different. We're talking about this now. Loving one another. And God always gives us the ability to do this. Because when we say, yeah, I can't love him. I can't love her. There's this thing between us. I just don't click. They bug me. I don't like the personality. It's not you can't, it's you won't. Because this is the command. And with every command, he gives the ability. And it comes down to your walking with God. It comes down to the, what is the fruit of the Spirit? What's the first one? Love. Is that something you produce in yourself? It's fruit. In chapter 15, Jesus is going to say, my Father is glorified in this. And he's talking about the vine and the branches and we're to remain in Him, we're to abide in Him. My Father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit, being connected to the vine. And so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide 
my love. Jesus himself submitted to this, the law of love. 15.10, if you keep my commandments, you abide in my love, just as I kept the Father's commandments and abide in his. He, he leads us. He goes there first. We follow him with all that he gives us, with all that he gives us, and it is sufficient. Second thing we see is that the world is watching. Is the world watching us? Oh, you better believe it. And every time they see something bad, you know, the, the uh, recently the apologist who died and was found out that he was living a life of sexual perversion, it's everywhere in the news. The televangelist who spends millions of dollars on a jet and the world goes, ha, ha. Those Christians. The church secretary who embezzles the money. Who's our church secretary? Anyway, yeah. <laughs> You're going to hear about it in the news, right? And, and what do they conclude? Oh, they love each other. No. It's a farce. That's what they con- conclude. Unfortunately, this is where we oftentimes fail, isn't it? Churches fail at this. Look at the, the, most of the, the epistles in the New Testament. Why were they written? Because churches were not loving each other. There were problem people. There were divisions and there was strife and immorality and all sorts of things in the body. 1 Corinthians is probably the, the best example. Uh, the, the church that had the, the greatest amount of dysfunction and division And yet we have the greatest chapter in love there, don't we? Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And he said that to a church that was rife with division. But we do well, Valley Bible Church does, and I commend you for it. But we need to be aware that the world is indeed watching. They're watching. So, a summary of this command, this new commandment. The content of the command is love. The object, the new object of the command is one another. And the measure, the new measure of this command is Christ's love for us. The outcome or the result, the goal, the end of it all. What's the purpose of it? That this command fulfilled by this, the world sees that we are true disciples of Jesus Christ. We're not fake. We're real. We're genuine. By genuine love. You've all heard probably the quote from... Tertullian, who was one of the early church fathers in North Africa. He wrote about a century after the Apostle John. And the pagans, 
of his day marveled at the Christians because the Christians were undergoing a lot of persecution. And Tertullian quoted them with some parentheses. And this is what the people were saying. Even in the face of ferocious persecution, they would say, see how they love one another. That was their observation. The world saw this, that they had love for one another. And Tertullian's parenthesis is, for they themselves hated one another. And they said, and how they are ready to die for each other. And his parenthesis was, for they themselves are readier to kill each other. That's the world. This is us. To live and to die the love of Christ that he's given to us. Which brings us to a final lesson. This love, again, it can't be manufactured. A genuine love for one another has to come from a genuine love for Christ, right? It flows from him. We always look to him as our example. We have to cultivate it because the flesh is going to pull us the other way. The world is going to pull us the other way. We have to pay attention. We have to remember. We have to recite this. We need to renew our minds. We need to rehearse this truth over and over and over again because it's necessary. But we have the wherewithal. Someone has once said that God's love for us is a much safer subject than our love for him. And how true that is. But this, this is love, isn't it? The bread and the cup that we're going to take in just a moment is his love. For God so loved the world that he gave. So when we partake of the bread and we partake of the cup, we are declaring by the bread we're a family. We are, there's one body. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians. The bread represents the oneness of the body of Christ. And by virtue of our faith and our relationship to him, we are one. We are a family. And the blood, the very life, poured out as a sacrifice. His life for your life. Your sin for his righteousness. Great joy, we partake of this. There's a caution that's given in the scriptures. Because we are to love one another and we're part of one another, brothers and sisters, if there's something between you and another Christian, it might be better to hold this today until you can go to that person and ask for forgiveness, to ask for their kindness, and accepting your apology, righting the wrong that has caused the hurt. And so that's a caution. If you are here and you believe in Christ, we invite you to the table. If you do not yet believe in Christ, we don't want to ask you to do something you don't believe in. But we do invite you to believe in him. So we're going to sing, and then we will take the cup together.